0: Hello and welcome to Socialism, the weekly Marxist analysis podcast from the Socialist Party. Since the EU referendum in 2016, Brexit has dominated British politics. The Leave vote was a big blow for the capitalist establishment. It has already brought down one Prime Minister and has another on the ropes. But the Tory chaos, the lies and the lack of a clear socialist alternative being put has meant that many workers and young people are confused and worried about the potential impact of Brexit too. Socialist analysis can show a way forward through the fog to unite the working class. Today we're discussing a socialist view of Brexit. Over to Sarah Rack.
1: Okay, I'm here today with Clive Heemskirk from the Socialist Party's Executive Committee and we're going to be discussing Brexit and particularly some of the issues around the possibility of a second vote. Um, So to start with, Clive, we like to ask everyone why we're having this discussion, basically. Uh, So why is it important for socialists, and I think this is true um, not just in Britain, but internationally, to understand the different processes that are underway around the issue of Brexit?
2: Well, firstly, obviously, Brexit is um, immediately most explosive issue in Britain it's the biggest crisis for the British establishment in foreign policy terms since the Suez Crisis of 1956 if not World War II Um, it could potentially trigger the biggest split in the Tory party since the Corn Laws in the mid 19th century and also in relations to the Labour Party it again could potentially be the basis for a split and a new realignment of politics in Britain even more profound than the formation of the STP, the social democratic party in 1981 Um, and for the remaining eu27 member states it's also obviously an extremely important development the eu was set up um, from its inception as an agreement between the different national capitalist classes of europe with the aim of creating the largest possible market for the big European multinational corporations, cross-European regulations, a, a common you know, standard regime, and so on, that could act as a counterweight to the economic might of the USA, Japan, and more recently China, which of course is now the second biggest uh, economy in the world. So, for Britain to leave that EU block, be the first major country to do so, would be a, a significant blow to that project. I so will say the first major country; Greenland left in 1985, the EU in 1985, but. It actually has a you know, population the same size as Clacton-on-Sea, so it's not not quite the same as British capitalism pulling out. Um, and, uh, you know, so for all those reasons, it's it's an important issue. But I have to say, as well, it's an extremely confusing issue as well. Um, you know, it's been wrapped up with a fog of obscure terminology and the trivialisation of the issue, particularly, I think, by the BBC. Um, and therefore, it's hard to work out the different interests of the ruling elite, the ruling capitalist class in the debates on the one hand compared to the interests of the working class on the other hand and that's why it's important that socialists continue this discussion.
1: Okay so you I mean you hinted there at our understanding as socialists of what the EU is and I suppose we should say early on that in the referendum we called for a socialist leave vote and um, and part of the reason why we, we decided to have this discussion today is that just last weekend, uh, there was a big demonstration, um, some estimates say up to 700,000 people marching under the banner of uh, for, for a people's vote. Um, does that show that opinion has changed since the referendum vote, which obviously was a, a leave result, uh, and that there's now you know a big support in society for the European Union?
2: Well, that's interesting, support for what aspects of the EU? Um, for example, was this, um, were the demonstrators marching in support of the EU state aid rules and their public procurement rules, which mean that all public service contracts over £120,000, where there's a functioning market, have got to be put out to tender? Were they marching in favour of the single European railway directive, which would um, open up a Jeremy Corbyn led government to legal challenge if it renationalised the railways without again having a competitive tender process. And yeah, you know, I'm sure if you went to the park and asked them all those hands up, all those in favour of creating legal obstacles to rail nationalisation, probably the majority of people there would have opposed it, possibly the probably the platform, Anna Zubri, Vince Cable, Chuck Ouma, they would have voted in favour of You're continuing the neoliberal directives of the EU. And by the way, that does illustrate, again, what the EU actually is. It is a series of treaties between 28 different, now 28 different capitalist countries. Um, And by the way, those treaties together um, comprise about 80,000 pages worth of agreements, which for Britain have been codified into 12,000 regulations, standard rules and directives. Um, But they are pieces of paper. But obviously, some of those rules and some of those directives, um, you know, like the European Aviation Safety Rules or the European Food Safety Rules, which stop the sale of the famous chlorine-washed chickens in you know in uh, uh, in EU countries, you know, socialists would support those. I think the socialist position on chlorine-washed chickens is quite clear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, you know, those are totally unobjectionable uh, rules. But the the core of the EU is precisely this idea of a, a of a common market. Um, and uh, uh, you know the widest possible terrain for neoliberal policies to be implemented. But back to the you know, so therefore you know, there's a you know, the question to support the EU, I wonder what people think what the EU is. But back to the demonstration, it certainly was a massive demonstration. there can't there's no, no dispute about that. I think it's definitely the biggest demonstration in Britain since the TUC March against austerity in 2011, if not the anti-war demo of 2003. And, of course, there's an inevitable mix of attitudes. Probably, I think, a, a big proportion were marching in outrage at the Little Englander, uh, reactionary nationalist mentality of the right-wing Tories. But probably the main reason for the size this time was the fear, the growing fear, of a chaotic breakdown of the talks and all the consequences of that.
1: So that then that shows that there's different um, different motivations for people to be mm. on that demonstration, uh, and I think it's also true that people mean different things by a people's vote yes. and what a, a second referendum would be. So, what are, what are the options on that? What what could a question be uh, in terms of a second referendum on the EU?
2: Well, again, that's important because to get a referendum, and this isn't and this isn't really explained anywhere you know, or, or, in, or or usually in, in media discussion on this, but to get a referendum requires a vote in Parliament. And actually it's primary legislation, so that means it needs a bill, uh, a vote, a debate in the Commons, it has to go to the Lords, debated there, and then back to the Commons. So it it requires a process of of a parliamentary vote to get a referendum, and that includes agreeing the wording of a referendum. And for example, um, for the 2016 referendum, there was a challenge, there was a debate, uh, and there was quite a process of challenging on what the wording was going to be. Originally the wording was going to be should britain remain a member of the eu yes or no but studies have shown that if you have you know the, the yes vote in any referendum gets an extra 2% because psychologically yes is better than no, or more um, you're friendly than no. So that was changed, so it then became remain or leave. So you know, But that required a debate. There was uh, consultations, electoral commission, process legal, th- threats of legal challenge and so on. So the first question is, would there ever be an agreement? In, you know, if Parliament can't agree on a Brexit deal, how could it possibly agree on what the question would be in a referendum? Secondly, um, what type of questions should there be? One, you know, one the Tory MPs, Justin Greening former cabinet minister has come out for the idea of a three-question referendum. She says there should be a vote. One option should be, or the three options should be, the deal negotiated by Theresa May with the EU 27 countries. Um, That is one option. Two, leave without a deal. Or three, remain. But then, what, you know, why limit it to that? Why not have o- on the ballot paper a fourth option that's a renegotiation, open renegotiations for a new relationship with the EU, without the state aid rules, without the public procurement rules, without the prohibitions on nationalisation? Why shouldn't we have that as a ref- you know, as an option on the referendum? I'd be in favour of, of, of that. Um, you know, you know, so again, it's who decides the wording of a you know, of, of a vote. And by the way, what, would there be a transferable vote if no, none of the options got fifty percent? Would people's second preference come into play at that point? You know, it really, it it indicates to me this is you know it's more propaganda um, out there rather than a serious proposition. Um, and I suppose the the other aspect then it, it shows the problems as well of reducing things to binary questions and the problems of referendums. So it, um, I think it might be okay for Strictly come dancing, deciding who should go through to the next round. But bluntly, you know, um, they're a lower form of democracy compared to representative democracy. um, And who decides the question is almost as important as what the question is.
1: So, I mean, we've not been we're not uh, campaigning for, you know, under the slogan of a people's vote. But as you've just said, there's different uh, there's different types of questions that could happen, and we also wouldn't take the same position on all of those, no. would we? We would um, be, you know, more open to certain types of referendums at different stages, and depending what it represented, uh, for example.
2: Yes, I think you know, having pointed to the problems with referendums, I think we have to be clear: it's not a question of principle for the Labour movements. Referendums aren't the norm of the Labour movements. You know, we fight for. A represent you know a, work, a working class government a government that can represent the working class, um, you know and uh, uh, you know we're in favour of representative democracy, including inside the organisations of the labour movements. But particularly in situations when there isn't an alternative government, it's possible that a referendum can be used to uh, you know, rally people and defend working class interests. And they can be used to build um, organisation and consciousness. I mean, let's put it another way. It wasn't wrong for the Syriza government to have gone to a referendum in July 2015 against the EU's austerity memorandum. What was wrong was, was that once Alexis Tsipras had won the mandate, mobilised the population in a sense against the um, you know, against the dictate uh, you know, from the EU to you know, massively uh um, uh, cut public spending, uh, you know, the austerity demands that they, you know, the EU were insisting upon. The problem was that having got that mandate, instead of using it then to say, look, I've got a popular mandate, I'm going to now, you know, our government's now going to nationalise the banks, take them to public ownership, impose capital controls to stop the millionaires fleeing the country or, or send all their money out of the country, appealing to workers across southern Europe for solidarity and so on. They didn't do that. They had the referendum, and then they capitulated and carried out even worse attacks. So it's not a, you know, so it's not a principle in that sense. It's how it fits in with the, you know, the, you know, the momentum of the struggle. But the point is, in relation to um, Britain, um, yeah, you know, we do have the option of a Corbyn-led government, and that's, you know that's the most important thing to to draw out. Having said that, by the way, I will make another point on this: that I don't think it's impossible that. Theresa May could bring back um, a modified Chequers deal from you know, negotiations in the next month or two. And um, by the way, Chequers really is a Brexit in name only in the sense that it includes, for example, a commitment to keeping the EU's state aid rulebook um, as, as an example. So it's not impossible that May um, negotiates with the EU. There's further amendments you know, um, uh, taken into, you know, into, into account, some of the EU 27 objections to the Chequers. And that that's presented as a, as a um, you know the deal to Parliament in November or December, or even into the new year, as, you know, this is my deal, May's deal, or chaos. And that's the only option, that, you know, in the only vertical that's presented to Parliament. And while Jeremy Corbyn has been absolutely clear that he would not vote for um, a Chequers deal or any type of Chequers deal, I think is the, the phrase that he's used, probably because of things like the state aid rules and so on that he incorporates, I think it's entirely possible that we could see some of the Blairites in the Labour, parliamentary Labour Party. It's always open speculation how many would votes with Theresa May, but yeah, you know, I think we could, we could see some of the Blairites, including, by the way, those who marched on Saturday, um, you know, in, in, uh, calling for a people's vote. Some of them would think, some of them would say, well, actually. Um, it's, it, it is the it is the best option. It is his Brexit in name only. It's that or chaos, and they'll break the Labour whip. Uh, you know, is that chaos okay? or or Jeremy Corbyn government, which they also don't want, and they'll break the Labour whip, and um, and they'll vote for that as the least bad option, and that means that the you know a deal could be pushed through, which does t- keep all the worst ne- you know neoliberal rules and directives of the EU and in those circumstances I don't think it would be wrong for us to campaign well let's have a people's vote on this, this isn't what we wanted, let's have a people's vote you, know, you have to demand a referendum at that point. But I suppose the last point I make on this issue is that concretely there is at this moment in time the possibility of a governmental alternative, a Jeremy Corbyn led government and that's what we should be stressing at this moment in time if there can be a parliamentary majority uh, assembled, put together to agree to hold a second referendum and to agree what the wording should be, why shouldn't that same parliamentary majority agree to hold a general election? Because they're afraid they're afraid of a real people's vote, a general election, and the chance of a Corbyn government.
1: So, um, I mean, what we're outlining so far, and our starting point, is obviously the interests of the working class uh, in relation to this question, um, and... You know what what types of uh, votes would further the interests of the working class, further the interests, you know, further the chances of winning a Corbyn government, like you were just talking about. Um, but the the other side uh, of the, the the situation is the view of the the capitalist class, represented by the Blairites, as you were just mentioning, uh, Theresa May, and so on. So, what do you think is the view of the majority of the capitalist class? Because they're obviously divided on the question uh, as well. Uh, but what's what's the view of the majority to the idea of a second vote on the EU?
2: I think you have to start from the fact that the majority, the vast majority of the capitalist class in Britain, wanted to remain in the EU um, you know, at the time of the the referendum. Because after all, it is based, as I said, on um, neoliberal rules. It's based on the Single Market Act, which was passed in 1986, and it was pushed by Margaret Thatcher. That was actually her legislation. She signed that European Legislation Single Market Act um, it, it, you know, to get that into uh, you're, you're underway. So it really is um, a boss's club in I- implementing Thatcherism on a continental scale. I think that's, you know, that's um, uh, been our position. Um, and after the June referendum in, in 2016, when it was a blow to the establishment, I mean, the whole establishment was mobilised from... President Obama, through to you know, the, you know actually it wasn't the Queen; it's Prince William who made who made comments. Um, you know, but the CBI, the TUC leaders, and so on. The whole the whole establishment was mobilised, and the, um, uh, and and they were defeated. Um, but they hoped to use the template that's existed elsewhere in the EU, of when referendums go the wrong way the first time, you then. Wait a while, build up the pressure, and have a second vote, which then goes the right way, and that's happened in Ireland twice over the Nice Treaty in 2001 and the Lisbon Treaty 2007-2008. On both occasions, they were rejected first time. There was a delay, and then a second referendum. It happened in Denmark. There was two treaties. I'm sorry, two referendums to get the Maastricht Treaty passed. It happened in the um, in France and the Netherlands, where. The EU constitution was rejected in referendums there. So it was repackaged as a Lisbon Treaty and literally, literally, you, know, you stick a new heading on it and it was much the same thing. Um, and then and then that was, you know, a couple of years later that was passed in referendums. That was, you know, that was pushed through. Um, but these are different times. Yes, you know, that, you know, so that template exists, but these are different times to that, te- you know, so that, that time when that was possible. This is the age of austerity still. Wages still haven't recovered uh, you know, in Britain, from the levels you know, from before you know the time of 2007-2008 crash, um, and at bottom, the vote in 2016 was a working-class vote of rage at the establishments, and that has not abated. The lava is still very hot, in that sense. And actually, and that's true um, in Europe as a whole. Since the age of austerity, there have been more EU referendum defeats than victories, including actually. In you know the Netherlands, where there was a vote on um, the U- you know the EU's uh, U- the EU Ukraine Association agreements, and even that was voted down. The only the last victory in the EU refer and the San Marino accession treaty was you not support you're not supported. So, you know, so the last victory I think was in two thousand and fourteen when Denmark approved the establishment of a unified patent court. And I'm not sure how many people would have marched in. Hyde Park against against that, so uh, the idea that it's po- possible to get um, reverse you know, that template of reversal, reversal referendums, I think is is no longer there. I think the ruling class are conscious of that. I mean, interestingly, Roy Jenkins, who you know, one of the founders of the SDP, um, you know, an old you know, Labour chancellor from the you know, the nineteen sixties, uh, he said. Um, uh, after the 1975 eu referendum that the yes side won because you know quote the people followed the advice of people they were used to following um, and it, you know that idea that there was authoritative figures but that confidence in institutions in authoritative figures has been blown away by the age of austerity it's manifested in things like uh, the irish abortion referendum where these you know the establishment were not Able to hold the line and had had to shift. There was they were discredited in national elections since 2008 financial uh, crash. The incumbent has won in fewer than one third of elections, whereas before 2008 they were winning in two thirds of elections. So there is undermining of um, authority. Um, authoritative figures in inverted commas, uh, undermining of the people um, the, whose advice the people used to follow. Um, and that was and that explained the Brexit, the Brexit votes And that mood of anger is still there, while some opinion polls have shown a so-called certain briguette, even among some working-class Leave voters, but marginal as far as I can see. There's been very few uh, indications of big shifts in opinion. Um, uh, but that's different, and the opinion poll is different to being asked again to change their minds in the second vote. So I think it's, um, it's extremely unlikely that the ruling class would risk, you know, having another rebuff. Mm. Um, so you know, I think it's, you know, I, I think the, you know, it, it's a useful tool to put pressure on, um, but um, I don't think it's going to you know, result in a, a second referendum.
1: And. Like you just explained, obviously the 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 vote was a big blow to the capitalist establishment, and it was a big blow to the Tories, and that was kind of one of the points that we made in the referendum campaign mm. uh, when we. We campaigning for a socialist Leave vote, um, and there were some worries that um, a Leave vote would strengthen the the right wing. Mm. We were saying, well, actually, it could uh, explode the the right wing, really, the divisions in the Tories. Mm. Obviously, it did bring down Cameron. (laughs) Um, uh, But as as a party of government, the Tories are still clinging on at this stage. do you think that is possible for them to continue to, to muddle through the whole uh, process?
2: Actually, party of government is an interesting description of Theresa May's <laughs> government, actually. Um, but uh, uh, um, but it is true. We said it could bring down Cameron and raise the prospect of a corbyn led government. And actually, that was true. And let's not forget, by the way, it, you know, it's still seared in my memory, that Cameron went into the Commons at one point... And pointed across to Corbyn, the Eastern schoolboy, and said, for heaven's sake, go. Do you remember that? At that point. And yet now it's possible, with May also on the brink, that Jeremy Corbyn could have outlasted two Tory prime ministers. So that's that says something in terms of the shift, the undermining of the Tory party that the the defeats in the referendum represented. But it's a broader question, really, as well, because the Tory Party are profoundly split. Um, they are a capitalist party. There's no question about that. But like all capitalist politicians, defending a system that's based on the exploitation of the majority by a tiny minority you know, representing the elite, they can't. They can't rule on that basis. Trump doesn't do it. Trump, Trump doesn't go into the and say, "I represent the one percent or the half of half a percent," and you know, <laughs> and I don't care about the rest of you. He has to try and pretend. And the Tory party has to do the same as well. All capitalist politicians have to do that. They have to try and find a way to divide the working class, which they do by ideological means. And that means they you know, stress religion or religious division, sexism, and of course nationalism. And by the way, it's the most extreme variant, racism as well. And the, But the problem that they have, the Tory party has, is that Half their membership leaves, you know, the the, you know, the garbage about Britain's glorious past, and so on. Um, and actually, their membership is very small, hundred twenty thousand. It doesn't really represent, you know, the you know uh, the interest that, you know there's um, uh, 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 over um, six million businesses in Britain. A lot of them are small businesses, you know, But there are six million businesses in Britain. it you know, doesn't really represent, in that sense, uh, a gathering together of you know, the, you know the capitalist class in the real sense. And actually, by the way, the membership, you know, that, that membership last year in the Tory Party, one hundred twenty thousand. Their main contribution to the finances of the Tory Party was to die, not to pay their membership subs, but to leave legacies. So it's not, you know, it's not really a, um, a represent in that sense, fully representing the capitalist class. And in the past, um, the capitalists have solved that problem by calling up their, their second eleven, and, and in the days of Tony Blair. That was their first eleven in reality, um, but the problem that they have is that the Labour Party has, even though it hasn't been transformed as it should have been, after Jeremy Corbyn's unexpected victory in two thousand and fifteen. Nonetheless, he's still in, you know, he's still in uh, the leadership. It should have been democratised further. It hasn't been, you know, it hasn't been consolidated in that sense. The old Blairite structures in the Labour Party should have been overturned. You know, the Blairite MP should have been deselected. The Socialist Party should, and others you know, who have been expelled should have been re-admitted, like the RMT, Transport Workers' Union, for example, which founded the Labour Party in 1900s, voted against reaffiliation, because if they had reaffiliated affiliated they would have had less votes um, in the uh, National Policy Forum, which decides Labour's policy, than the House of Lords Labour Group. So those type of things need to be... You know, the Labour Party needs to be transformed, but nonetheless... Despite the fact that that hasn't happened and that Jeremy Corbyn hasn't, unfortunately, used these positions sufficiently to, you know, to, you know, to to clear out the rights In reality, nonetheless, he's still there. It's still the prospect of a Corbyn-led government, and that is is the only glue holding the Tory party together at this stage.
1: So. On the technicalities, then, in terms of what what stages do the Tories have to get through uh, to, you know, if they if they were to manage to cling on um, mm. to the end of the process, what are the different stages? And I suppose a lot of people are wondering, um, you know, the possibility of a a no deal, a crash out mm. kind of scenario. When would it be clear that that was the case that they were at an absolute impasse in being able to achieve what they are trying to achieve? I
2: mean, the first thing is there is a process which the EU has established under the um, so-called Article 50 um, procedures. And the first thing that has to be agreed is a formal um, withdrawal treaty, which is, has to be signed off by the government. So in that sense, it's an a international legal document. Um, and the four areas it's supposed to cover are citizens' rights, both for EU citizens residing in Britain and for British citizens residing in the in, in EU 27 countries and apparently that has been agreed. That's one of the so-called, the part of the 95% that Theresa May talks mm-hmm. about. Um, Northern Ireland, which perhaps we come on to later. Um, the divorce settlement, and that was agreed back in December that Britain would pay £39 billion in respect of its past commitments to the EU budget and, and, and certain other aspects, certain other EU programmes. So Britain would be paying £39 billion to, uh, you know, to leave, and that's part of the withdrawal treaty. And then the transition periods, you know, um, how um, the, uh, Britain would move from um, withdrawal from the EU treaties to a, um, you know, a new future relationship. And that future relationship, the framework for that at least, is supposed to be agreed as well. Not all the details but at least the outlines of whether or not it would be a a customs union or a a free trade deal or whether or not it would include support or recognition of the single market rules and so on. So um, that framework of a future trading relation has to be included within the Official Withdrawal Treaty. That then is supposed to go to a parliamentary vote. Once that's agreed between May and the uh, heads of government of the EU27, and that's slated in, um, it was slated in for the October summit. That was that didn't happen. There was talk of an uh, emergency summit in um, November, um, I think the 13th and 14th was touted. That's now been dropped. Um, and now it looks as, as if it could be the next EU summit on December the 13th. Um, if that is agreed there, then that has to go to a parliamentary vote in Westminster, but also the approval procedures in the different EU countries as well, and the EU Parliament has to vote on it as well. So that means that process could continue for some time. It could go on even into the new year. Um, uh, But if there is no agreement by the 21st of January in Britain, the government is meant to be coming back to Parliament under the terms of legislation that was passed, and there will be a new vote on what to do, because by that stage, two months before the official end of britain's membership of the eu on the 29th of march 2019 um it, you know it, uh, you're then into this means there hasn't been an agreement there hasn't, there isn't the poss- there's a possibility there won't be a withdrawal agreement signed if there isn't a withdrawal agreement there isn't a transition period and therefore the you know the um you know, the european safety agency uh, airline aircraft safety agency rules don't apply planes which fly off from london can't land in you know, in uh, in Berlin, because they haven't got the safety certificates and so on. So that's what, you know, the so called no deal scenario means. Um, having said that, again, there's a bit of confusion about terminology because um, it's likely that under those circumstances, there would be an agreement to recognise the safety certificates provided by the Euro- you know, European you know, Safety uh, um, Agency trained personnel. Um, you know, and that's a deal, isn't it? Even, even if that's the only thing they agree, that's a deal um, in that sense. But it doesn't resolve anything in terms of all the other aspects um, that are in negotiations, the question of the trading relations um, and, and, and so on. Or, or indeed even the question then of citizens' rights, divorce settlement and, and the other aspects that are part of the withdrawal agreement. So that, that could drag on, um, but um, it can't drag on forever there is there is finite time and it's it, it's and it's coming up for four to five months
1: so that's kind of the technical um, yeah. blocks that there are uh, and yeah it's that's evident the just from that <laughs> <two> podcasts, <laughs> it's evident from that that like you say it could be very drawn out but then you've also referenced within that the political obstacles that there yeah. also are so what do you think are the issues that are likely to be the biggest sticking points uh, politically in the negotiations
2: well on the on the future framework and was the um, what type of relation Britain would have with the, you know, the EU after um, the formal brexit formal withdrawal if it's too vague you know, um, and it means that all the details are deferred to negotiations during the transition period what's been known in the you know, or, 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 or talked about as a, as a blindfold brexit Um there is a problem with the, for the EU with that, because first of all, it means that negotiations could drag on uh, and Britain's, um, sorry, the EU budget finishes uh, in, in 2020 um, and then there's, you know, and there's having to start negotiations for a new budget, which is going to be fraught when you have clashes between the EU Commission and the Italian government over its public spending and so on. So it's a fraught process anyway. If that gets mixed into negotiations with Britain, and by the way, um, if, for example, Britain was to follow the so-called Norway option of being a member of the single market effectively, um, you know, the European free trade EFTA option, um, Norway pays contributions to the EU, actually on a on a per head basis, about 80 to 90% of what Britain pays to the EU. So even negotiating that would then fit it, you know, tie in with the budget negotiations and so on. So there'd be... Um, yeah, so the EU doesn't really want that, or so the EU27, not all the EU27 countries want that. They don't want the um, you know, negotiations to overlap in, in that way. But also, um, once Britain leaves on um, uh, in March two thousand and nineteen, it becomes a third country um, in in you know the EU terminology. It's no longer an EU member, and that therefore a trade deal with a third country requires unanimity from all, 20, all the 27 EU member states, whereas now um, it only requires a qualified majority vote to vote for the withdrawal Treaty, um, which is two-thirds of the EU countries to vote for how much Britain should pay in its divorce settlements and, uh, and so on, and uh, and whether or not Britain would then, t- you know, the framework for agreement, like would they have a customs union and so on. So if it requires every twenty, all 27 countries to support it, by the way, it's all 27 uh Countries plus, for example, the regional parliaments, like in Belgium, it's not just the state, the federal government, it's the Walloonian parliament, the Flanders parliament and the Brussels parliament have to approve. would um, know, have to approve a new arrangement with Britain. Um, and of course, we, and we saw, for example, over the Canadian EU deal, which took seven years to negotiate. Um, always talk about Canada Plus. It took seven years for the, uh, the candidate EU trade deal to be negotiated and it nearly broke down when the Walloon Parliament, um, which is a uh, Belgian Socialist Party, not uh, linked to us, but a Social Democratic Party, um, uh, controls that parliament. But there's also two left-wing uh, workers' parties. They're, they're more aligned. Oh. Or analogous in that sense that they uh, objected to the Canadian uh, deal because it was giving powers to courts to, to decide, you know, to adjudicate on disputes over privatisation and, and market access and so on, um, and they nearly scuppered that deal the Walloonian Parliament. So it would mean it means in effect that Germany and France would lose control a bit of the negotiations, and therefore that they're opposed to a, um, a vague, a vague. Uh, uh, non committal non blindfold brexit I they want they want the fix they want the future relationship tied down at least in outline so that's one of the things but then on the withdrawal treaty itself the easier part um, the transition period is a problem um, because uh, what what the terms of that it means at the moment at the moment the plan is is that Britain formally leaves the EU structures next March. So it means that next May, when there's EU elections, there won't be elections in Britain. Um, Britain won't um, attend EU summits, but everything else will still apply. Single market rules, the state rule, you know, the state aid rules, the customs uh, union rules and so on. Um, and they'll apply for, for um, until December 2020 and any new rules that are introduced as well. Um, so uh, there is a fear amongst some sections of the British capitalists that the, you know the EU will use that power to put more curbs on, um, I don't know, the City of London or, or, or whatever. So there's you know, so there's tensions there about how the transition period will actually work, and then of course there's the totally and then that's all linked to all of that is linked to the intractable problem of Northern Ireland.
1: And. Is it intractable? <laughs> I think that is, that's what people, uh, you know, both the capitalist class seem to be worried about, but I think a lot of workers are probably yes. also worried about, is how can the Irish border question be resolved? What do we say about yeah. that?
2: And, and and it is an issue to be worried about. It's a very serious question. Um, and what it resol- revolves around, as I you know, uh, hinted at, is um, not uh, for the period after Brexit on March Um, 2019 um, assuming that there is a withdrawal agreement um, because the transition period envisages the continuation of the EU's customs and single market regime for the whole of the UK for that period until December 2020 but the issue is what happens after that after the transition period ends on the 31st of December 2020 because if the UK hasn't agreed either an alignment with the EU's customs union and single market rules, or new arrangements for the single market, um, a borderless Northern Ireland, in the words of the EU Commission, would put undermine the integrity of the single market, um, And that's why they're saying, that's why the EU's 27 and Michel Barnier, the, you know, the, um, the negotiator, they're saying there must be a so-called backstop arrangement or backstop proposal for separate customs and single market rules for northern ireland you know compared to you know, england scotland and Wales, from january 2021 and what they mean by that is that they would have what they call light touch checks either at ports on the um, in the irish sea or in transport going across the irish sea but that as has been clearly stated that will be rejected by unionist uh, politicians um, you know the dup have, have rejected that and any unionist politician, yeah, you know, you know, they would say this is separating um, Northern Ireland from Britain. Um, you know, this is undermining the UK. And any unionist politician that attempted to compromise on that issue, I think, would be outflanked. Um, you know, they would set themselves up to be outflanked by another uh, you know, uh, set of unionist politicians. Um, and therefore, it's you know hard to see them making that type of um, you know concession. Well, on the other hand, of course. The nationalist community will be absolutely opposed to any return of a hard border on the island of Ireland. So um, it really is a difficult um, and dangerous situation. And when you think about it, you know, are there capitalist solutions that don't aggravate sectarianism? And I, I, am struggling to find uh, one. Now the Tory, you know, the right wing, the, the, the you know the uh, the mad Brexiteers, the Tory European Research Group put forward this idea of no customs at all you know that you know that, um, they, they don't mind that um, eu goods can come into northern ireland and britain um uh, you, you know they're, they're not worried about that so there shouldn't be there should in effect be um, no customs border on the uh, um, uh, you on the northern ireland border um, and that's because they want to deregulate the uk economy they want to undercut the eu single market by you know and by removing you know, regulations and so on, in a race to the bottom. So in that sense, it's you know, from their point of view, that's, that fits in with their free market uh, approach. Um, but that would, in, um, would lead the EU to insist on a border and, and probably insist the Irish government puts the border up not, you know, you know, not the British government, uh, ironically, and that's incidentally, why the DUP has supported the European Research po- um, Group's proposal, because it shifts the blame for return to the border from them to the Irish government. So, uh, and you know and again, that's going to create an incredibly, diff- you know, dangerous um, situation. Leo Farrakher. Uh, uh, um, took um, copies of a 1972 newspaper uh, clip-in to the last European Council uh, in Brussels a couple of weeks ago with a report from 1972 of how a customer's point was blown up on the the border. And so this is what's at stake. Now, there's an element of whipping up sectarianism on his part as well. But that's true. And that's what happens, unfortunately, when you get 28 capitalist politicians sitting in the room in Brussels or the castle in Salzburg or whatever, they're not going to come up with intre- you know, with a with a solution which meets the interests of working class people. Now, what is that solution? And that's, that's a difficult question, but I think our starting point has to be, well, we're not opposed to undermining the integrity of the single market. It's not our single market, it was Margaret Thatcher. She set it up. So why shouldn't we undermine its integrity? We want to undermine its integrity. We want to allow state aid it won't want to allow nationalization wants the banks to be able to be nationalized big monopolies and so on. so in that sense we're not defenders of the eu's capitalist single market and let's put it the other way the other way around Therefore which social force could recast the single market could recast the relations between the twenty eight capitalist countries of the eu It can't be it won't be capitalist governments I think that's crystal clear. But a government in Britain could appeal to the working class across Europe, and and and, and initially workers in in, uh, in in Britain, Northern Ireland, and in, in Ireland. Um, that's a different question, and that means a Corbyn-led government carrying out a a, a socialist Brexit, and that's the you know, bluntly that's the solution, the only solution that I can see, or the only way forwards you know, that you have a um a, a government that can appeal to workers for a solution that defends their interests and does as i say undermine the capitalist single market but creates uh, you know, working relationships uh, between the different workers acro- you know, across britain ireland and and actually in europe
1: so you said there which i think is definitely true that you know when, whenever these 28 capitalist governments come together they're not going to come up with a deal Mm. that is in the interests of the majority of people particularly on the irish border question but i think we can apply that Mm. to all the different aspects of it and i think part of um what's represented by the big march that took place last weekend is that people have no faith at all in the tory government to get a, a Brexit that will be in the interests of workers, mm. young people, ordinary people in Britain. So in that sense then, a Tory Brexit is inherently bad for workers. Yeah. So what what can be done about that? What can we do about that?
2: Yes, that's right. A Tory Brexit would be bad, a Tory Remain would be bad, a Tory government is bad. And that's and that's the fundamental point. Corbyn led government, in, you know, in that you know, in that sense is our main goal. But that does raise the obvious question, well why would Angela Angela Merkel um, you know, the French uh, President Macron, um, and all the 20s, EU 27 leaders are capitalist leaders actually, including now, unfortunately, um, Alexis Tsipras from Greece, you who know, you know, capitulated and has carried out austerity for the last three years, why would they listen to a Corbyn-led government and agree to what you were describing earlier would, would be a fundamental recasting and renegotiation of the relations between the you know, 28 uh, um, uh, uh, countries? Um, but opposing it in that way—that's half the answer, because none of them represent the working class of their, of their own countries. Um, and a socialist approach to Brexit would have to use the talks to go over their heads to um, the workers below in, in Europe. And that means that if Jeremy Corbyn is elected, he goes to an EU summit, Part of it would be to challenge them. Yeah, you know, like when Macron turns around and says, you know, you know to, to May. Um, or, or said after the, the recent summit, uh, people were misled in Britain. Jeremy Corbyn should turn around and say, Yes, but opinion polls, they were misled in France. You won in a, in a vote against Marine Le Pen, um, but now your opinion polling is down to about 30%. You don't represent working class people in France. Let's have another vote in France about whether or not they want state aid rules to be uh, abolished. Yeah, whether they want. You know, um, yeah, their working weeks have been increased. The type of neoliberal policies that have been insisted insisted on now by Macron in France. So we'd have to challenge those leaders, and that would include campaigning in their countries. I think, uh, and for example, in France, you, you know, we'd have to link up with people like Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who won nineteen percent, came third in the EU you know, in the French sorry in the French presidential election. Um, you know, and, and his he's he's approaches for a recasting. He actually, uses that phrase: we need to renegotiate or recast the EU treaties. Fine, let's link up with people like that, to link in Germany. Or, for example, the Socialist Party TDs in Ireland. Why does you know, Jeremy Corbyn waste his time in the so-called Socialist International, uh, Socialist and Progressive International, uh, talking to the seven Irish TDs, Irish Labour Party TDs, when there's a block? Of you know TDs who are socialists in the Irish Parliament, so um, that would mean, and that's and that leads on to another point, because that means being prepared where necessary to break with the parties of the so-called socialist and progressive international, which includes, by the way, the US Democrats as well. You know, but it includes, I say, the Labour Party in Ireland, the PSOE, Psoe in Spain, pasok ironically in Greece still, the SPD. In, uh, in Germany, so you know, Jeremy Corbyn you will know, need to break with them or, at the very least, link up with opposition currents inside those parties so when, for example, last year, after the general election in Germany was a rebuff both to Angela Merkel's Christian Democratic Union and the Social Democratic Party um, the SPD had a members vote on whether or not they should uh, continue in the grand coalition with uh, Angela Merkel, and the, you know, the young SPD, at the youth section, led a campaign for a no vote to break the grand coalition, the Groko, as they as, as they call it, and it was a mistake that Jeremy Corbyn didn't intervene. Really, he should have got he should have gone to Germany, had a mass rally. You know, they can translate Oh Jeremy Corbyn into German, I'm sure, um, and you know, and, and appealed appealed to uh, uh, SPD members to break the coalition and to strike out for a different uh, um, road. And actually, the young SPD did contact Momentum. Um, you know the uh, you know, the group that was set up to support Jeremy Corbyn in the Labour Party, and they sent over sent sent over one of their national organisers. And again, I'm only reading it from press reports, but I, but the uh, the quote that that they had in the you know in, in the press was that she said she urged the ISPD to foster a sense of inclusivity, um, you know, in their campaigning. In other words, to you know um, to make sure that they. Try to maintain the unity with the German Blairites, bluntly, and that's you know and that's a massive mistake. And really, that links to you know perhaps my last point actually that a socialist approach to Brexit also requires a socialist approach at home. And really, the the key task now is to um, continue complete the transformation of the Labour Party to work out a clear socialist programme uh, for the Labour Party but also to take the organisational steps that are needed to overturn the legacy of Blairism and uh, and move forward. I think on that basis, with a uh, a clear lead from uh, a Jeremy Corbyn-led government, then uh, then there would be um, new opportunities to transform the debate over Brexit and begin the process of transforming Europe.
1: Yeah, um, I think what you've outlined there shows that our approach really is a complete break with the mainstream argument as it's had in the press and so on. And these uh, these kind of ideas will be new to a lot of people because of that, that you know we reject the logic of the, the capitalist argument on it. So people should send us their questions and we'll obviously have to come back to these points at all the future points uh, in the negotiations and so on. So thanks for joining us,
0: Clive. Has this whetted your appetite for discussion on Brexit? Come to the workshop at Socialism 2018 on the 10th and 11th of November in central London. Head over to the episode notes at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash podcast for further suggested reading on the different aspects of the topic Clive just mentioned. Let us know what you thought and any questions you've got for Clive by emailing socialismpodcast at socialistparty.org.uk and make sure you click subscribe on your podcast app to never miss an episode.